0: shop and to segment seven of my podcast. Today I want to share with you an account of how my life played out growing up as a teenager and my subsequent life in the newspaper and printing business. In my messages in earlier podcasts, I recounted how I had several jobs after school and on weekends as I was growing up. After I started high school, I often could be found near the center of the village when school was over, and one day, Mr. George Adams, the owner and publisher of the Smithville Review, asked me if I would like a part-time job as I was always hanging around. My father was stricken with bad health, and the older members of the family, including me, decided to help with finances of the family as times were tough. Our parents had no savings as they had come through the Great Depression of the 30s and 40s. My father always worked as a laborer on farms, and, then, and that at least gave us enough to have a home and feed the family. I applied for a full-time job at the Smith Review print shop where I had been working part-time, and this proved to be the greatest life-changing event of my life. Working after school introduced me to what the printing process entailed. It could be a messy job at times, cleaning printing ink off the used type with Varsol and learning the type cases which contained up to 98 individual compartments for all the letters of the alphabet and the numbers. In the early days of the process, printing involved many different type styles, both lead and wooden. Also, sizes range from 6 point to 84, and even larger in wooden type that was used for big signs and posters. I will use printing terms as I tell my story on my journey through my life at the print shop. George and Marjorie Adams, owners of the print shop, were like second parents to me, and I was able to learn a trade. I learned to operate the linotype machine, setting type in what we called hot type. At this time in the printing trade, we used handset type along with hot type to make the print for the presses. After the job or the paper was printed, the forms would be taken apart, and the hot type remelted for use again, and the handset type put back in the trays. You had to memorize the layout of the trays and make sure to have the letters in the right order, as you may not be the one that uses that same tray again. I eventually learned to operate the presses, hand-fed, and later on the original Heidelberg, which was a revolutionary printing machine developed by the Germans. This machine operated on air, was equipped with, with its own air pump, and it would pick up the sheet of paper by air, print it, and lay it down in the bin on the press. George Adams was a great mentor, and he allowed me to learn and enjoy the whole printing trade. I learned the sales part as I would travel with Marjorie driving their car to sell advertising. This was always a thrill as I experienced the opportunity to drive a newer car. I scraped and saved when I turned 16. I was able to buy a Model A Ford car for $50 and that was when I learned to drive. As the time went by, George would loan me his car to take trips that was outside of the business realm. One year I remember it was the 1949 playoffs of the OSA Intermediate C League. He allowed me to drive his car and take five other players and team officials to Amherstburg for a game and we returned the next day. shop, I can remember Doug Johnson, Thalmo St. John, and Fred Johnston were the employees of the shop when I started to work there. Doug operated the Linotype and the presses. Thalmo was a bookkeeper and took care of advertising sales. Fred Johnston was in sales and he traveled by train to Hamilton, where he sold advertising for the weekly newspaper. The newspaper at the time was a Smithville Review, and it was printed on a big four-page press called a Chandler. It printed four pages on one side of a big sheet of newsprint, which measured 28 by 52 inches. We printed four pages on Tuesday afternoons and on the flip side, another four pages on Wednesday, as that was the publishing date of each week. As the press was printing, a big folding machine was used to fold and produce eight-page edition weekly. Later on in the 1940s, Jean Shepard, Nee Ecker, was employed as a linotype operator before she married Jack Ecker. When George Adams bought the print shop from A.T. Michelle, the building was only one story. Shortly after I started working, George Adams had the second story added. I remember this very well as I helped Ernest Downs, a bricklayer, mix the mortar and lay the brick to complete the solid brick building. I learned to operate the small Chandler and Price platin hand press. This meant that you hand-fed the paper into the press, it printed, and then you would pull it out. Many a close call with the fingers happened over the years. I was fortunate I kept my fingers safe. The press was powered by a small motor and a drive belt. The Heidelberg Press had other features that permitted the operator to crease, perforate, and gold stamp paper. My ambition when I started was to learn to operate the Mergenthaler linotype machine and the hot type process. I did master it, and I can honestly say that I could take the machine apart and clean it, then put it back together without having parts left over. The linotype was a very complicated and precise machine, consisting of many hundreds of moving parts, which all intertwined to create all different sizes of type. I enjoyed many Saturdays and Sundays on my own, just taking it apart and cleaning it. George Adams supported me in the learning process, and I took advantage of watching the mechanics when they would come to fix the machines when we had a major breakdown. The melting pot on the linotype was heated electrically and it required 550 volts. Many a time we would get a splash of hot metal when the alignment got out a little. Some of the moving parts were space bars, matrix, cams, molds, keyboard with some 90 keys, reeds, magazines to hold the matrix, distributor rails, and many other parts. I learned every facet of the printing business in the first few years I was there and was rewarded for my efforts. One incident I remember well was a time in the early 1950s when the Hamilton Spectator employees were on strike and they paid a visit to our shop to see if we were typesetting for their daily paper. Before we could get them off the premises after calling the police, they had dumped pop over the Linotype machine. This took many hours of cleaning despite the fact that we were not doing any work for the spectator. I attended many Chamber of Commerce meetings, which in those days were dinner meetings at the commercial hotel. I represented the print shop and the Chamber membership at that time was 50 to 60 business people. I will elaborate more on the Chamber and how it thrived over the years in, later, in a later podcast. In 1951, George asked me to attend the Canadian Weekly Newspaper Association Convention, which was being held in Winnipeg. And I remember this experience really well as this was the first time I had ever ventured this far from home. The time of year was February and it was very cold and snowy in Winnipeg. I traveled by train from Smithfield to Toronto and transferred for a train ride out west. The, The experience of sleeping on the train was exciting. At that time there were cars equipped with bunks and they were too high. I was assigned a top bunk and it was an experience because you had to get undressed and dressed within the bunk and there was not a lot of room. I remember working many hours overtime at the print shop when elections came along, municipal, provincial and federal. The time to produce ballots and and other materials for elections were limited. Remember the prohibition era. Yes, from before the Second World War there is prohibition and over the years many votes in each municipality were held to revoke it. I can remember three such votes over many years until 1970 when South Grimsby voted yes and a year later a liquor store was built in Smithville. Before this the residents would have to drive to Grimsby to purchase their beer and liquor as they had voted and won the right to have these facilities. Also, I remember when we were issued an individual beer ration coupon book and you had to be the age of 21. The Liquor Control Board of Ontario issued them and the following is part of the regulations as printed on the cover of the book. The Wartime Alcoholic Beverages Order, 1942, a Dominion government order, has restricted gallonage of beer available for consumption during the 12 months commencing November 1, 1943 and ending October 31, 1944, and thus has made necessary the issuance and use in Ontario of this beer ration coupon book. The individual coupons allowed the consumer one unit of beer, which consisted of one carton of six small beers. One could use four coupons at any one purchase, but the regulations printed stated that beer purchased by the holder of this indiv- individual beer ration book is required by law to be consumed only in his or her residence. My, how we have progressed over the years, with the government still in control of our drinking habits! This information was gleaned from an actual coupon book, which was issued to Mrs. F. D. Nickel of Smithville and grandmother of Doug Nickel. It was issued November twelfth, nineteen forty-three. A great keepsake, Doug. During the war, many other c- commodities were rationed, also butter, sugar, and some meats. Now back to my life at the print shop. On top of my work there, I took on the position of scout leader in our community after hours for several years. This is where my love for community spirit originated. I became involved in many sports and community organizations over my lifetime. One year as scout leader of the Smithfield troop, I ventured to take the scout group camping over at Lake Erie in Waynefleet Township and stayed for four days and nights. The memorable thing that happened during this outing was that several of the boys and myself contracted poison ivy, and I did have trouble with it for several weeks. My mother then asked her good friend Mrs. Ptolemy about her remedy. She went to the woods and selected some greenery from a bush and boiled it on the stove, making a liquid that we rubbed on, and in a very short time it was all gone. I wish I could remember the name of the bush that she used to make the lotion. I never had poison ivy since. Over the time, I became involved in the planning and development of the township and the village of Smithville. I served for a number of years on the planning and development board appointed by council. I was elected chairman for a three-year term and one important development at that time was approving the second only subdivision in Smithville called the Wade Survey. The Dufferin Street subdivision was the first recorded years later i served on the commercial and industrial development board which was appointed by the township council the first event i took pride in was when the general factories company was first inquiring about coming to smithville in 1955 they wanted to buy land north of the train tracks which is now the industrial park mr albert prosniak was the owner of the farm property and the people who went to negotiate with him were not successful George Adams in his role as reporter for the newspaper found out about it, and later asked to see if he could talk with mister Prosniak, as he at times come into the office to advertise in the paper, and we got to know him. George asked me to go along with him to talk with Albert, and after explaining what it would mean to the township and the community, he agreed to sell the half of his farm north of the tracks to the company. Over the years, I had the opportunity to broker deals for other commercial enterprises in our community and was proud of the fact that people trusted me to be confidential in all matters and everything worked out successfully for all parties. General Factories was built in 1957. The council meeting in the old fire hall and office room upstairs was a memorable one when the top officials from General Factories Company in Philadelphia were present to sign the papers that they were officially coming to Smithville. Jim Weston, CEO of the TH&B Railway, was very influential, influential in the company influencing their decision to build here. The old pot-bellied stove that heated the room was blasting out heat and I often wondered what the men from Philadelphia really thought of this meeting. The other industrial firm I had the pleasure of brokering a deal with the township and their industrial land was when William Pollard of Skyway Fertilizer Limited established his company here. Mr. Pollard was a great friend and a businessman. In 1952, on my 21st birthday, George and Marjorie Adams presented me with a gift of a building lot with 150 foot frontage on Dufferin Street where I could build a home for the family. Then Mr. Adams informed me that he was buying a wartime house in Hamilton and he encouraged me to buy one so we could have them both moved at the same time. After taking measurements, I proceeded to dig deep enough to build a cement block foundation to place the building on when it arrived. This gesture was a highlight of my life, and I thanked them very much, as they were my mentors and gave me so much in learning the business. I still honor and remember them to this day. Then in 1954, Mr. Adams came to me and offered to sell me the Smithville Review and Printing Shop, as he was in bad health and wanted to retire. After discussing this proposal, I informed him that I had very little money to put down and a deal was worked out that allowed me to pay so much a year with interest and the deal was made. I'm not bragging, but it was such an honor that I became the youngest editor and publisher of a newspaper in Canada. Over the years, my sisters and my mother worked in the shop and I was privileged to have some great employees. I lived through some changing times in the printing business, not only in the newspaper field, but also in commercial printing. We went from hot type to cold type, typewriters, headliner machines. Then I was, then as I was ending my career in the printing industry, the computer was coming on the market. And as you know, this has been revolutionary. I am glad for the industry, but I also am glad to be retired. In the newspaper side of the business, I was always grateful for the writers who supplied stories from their communities. These stories made it a community paper and helped with a subscription that consumers paid for. There were many dedicated columnists, so I will not name them because I would likely leave some out and that would not be fair. The prices I remember started at 3 cents per copy. And after many years, it got to 10 cents for a single copy. It was cheaper to purchase a subscription. In 1968, with the newspaper business changing, I decided to sell the Smith Review to Ranney Publications, which was part of the St. Catherine Standard. I kept the commercial printing section of the business and carried on at the same location on St. Catherine Street. Then in 1969, the provincial government decided to widen Number 20 Highway through Smithville. This decision was very disruptive, and I required and it required some four properties to be expropriated. If you have ever gone through this process or will in the future, it is not enjoyable. The government wins and you are left to pick up the pieces. Jolly's Restaurant, Cutler's Printing, barber shop, formerly Jocelyn Bakery, and Mockery Machine Shop were forced to vacate. These properties were located from the corner of St. Catherine Street to Brock Street. The other property affected by the expropriation was Art Garner's home on West Street. Crothers Printing was able to find a home across the street in a small building owned by William Fields. The move was made and the business carried on. Then in 1989 a building on College Street was up for sale and Crothers Printing and partner Norm Clavell Insurance bought the building. A large addition was added on the south end for all the printing Equipment. The building had been used as a dental office a number of years earlier. There were many renovations needed to the office, part to provide rooms for Crothers Printing, Norm Clavel Insurance, and two other offices that were rented. This move proved very beneficial to all the businesses at 131 College Street. Over the years, I can remember a few bank robberies, serious car accidents, drownings, and major fires. The most bizarre incident happened in October 1950 when a headless corpse was found in a shack in Caster Township. The remains were identified as those of Limon Potts, and the skull was later found in a box near the bed. Provincial Constable, Police Constable Darcy McG- Garrett investigated, and Dr. G. H. Lee's corner helped identify the human being. I had to take pictures for the corner. The property was owned by John Horton, who was a lifelong resident of the township, and whose wife was a sister of the dead man. They had been away from the property for some three months. The scene and the family were front-page news in the Hamilton Spectator on October 17, 1950. I have shared many memories today and the time has come to close up the print shop for this week as I need to get prepared to attend the Smithland District Chamber of Commerce meeting at 7 p.m. Thanks for listening.